And these are the days of Elijah preparing. Oh, hey. I didn't see you there. You caught me. But I'm glad you came. Uh, glad to see you. Glad to. I, I want to share with you actually a little bit this morning from 1 Kings 18. I have been studying this passage and it is amazing. It is full of so much good stuff that I, I hope we can share it because I know that we've been looking at these stories of Elijah a little bit. So if you have not read 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 17, going to the end of the chapter, I'm going to sub that you pause the video right now and go ahead and read it and read it out loud. It's an incredibly powerful story and I think it deserves to be read out loud. Okay, now we're back. I'm going to assume that we have all read this portion of the scripture. We're in these stories of Elijah. You remember Elijah appeared in 17.1. He appeared before Ahab. He appeared in a time of prosperity for Israel, stability, political stability, all of those different things, but it was also a time of intense idolatry. And he called Ahab and the people to repentance, and he said, uh, as a sign that this is the Lord, there's going to be no rain in the land. And indeed, that's how it turned out. For the next three and a half years, Elijah is gone from the scene. Pastor Bryant shared that with us last week, how he was at the brook Cherith. It was taken care of by the Lord, the unlikely ravens. And then he was in Zarephath, in Sidon, right in the heart of Jezebel's country, Baal worship. There he was taken care of by that unlikely widow. Now, as one who has been prepared for this great confrontation, uh, he is brought back into the presence of Ahab, and he stands and he declares that it's time. It is no longer the case where we can keep living in this divided state. That's what he means in verse 21, where he says, how long will you go limping between two opinions? He's not saying, you know, you've looked at the evidence and you just can't make up your mind. He's saying you're living with a divided heart. You're living with a divided mind. And Yahweh calls for complete surrender. Yahweh is good. The Lord's way is good. And we're going to see that as we go throughout this passage today. But it calls for hearts and minds that are totally surrendered to him. And I want to use that idea of... Uh, being mindful of God, not mindful in the way that New Agey folks are talking about it these days, but mindful in the sense that we are completely aware, completely surrendered to Yahweh as our King. And I want to use that theme to sort of walk us through this. We're going to see actually four things today. The first one is this, just the mindlessness of Ahab. You see that in verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, O troubler of Israel? You remember in verse 1 of chapter 17 that Ahab, or Elijah, calls Ahab to repentance. He, he reminds him of the Lord, the one that he, as the king of Israel, is called to serve. And there has been this whole time, 
three and a half years for Ahab to repent, for Ahab to humble himself, to come back to the Lord, to tear down the bales, to get rid of the Asherah poles, to get rid of all of that. But Ahab hasn't done that. He has hardened his heart. Ahab should have been taking care of his people during this time. But it's really interesting uh, in Earlier in chapter 18, as he and his servant Obadiah, who also is a servant of the Lord, that's a whole different study. It's a great story, that person Obadiah. We don't have a lot of time to go into it today. But in verse 5, Ahab says to Obadiah, go through all the land to the springs of water, to the valleys. Maybe that we'll find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose any of the animals. Ahab is protecting his assets here. He's not concerned about the people that he has called the shepherd. He's not aware of his own heart. Uh, he is simply concerned with what he has and what he has to lose. Ahab stands in great contrast at that point to Obadiah, who at the risk of his own life saved uh, prophets of Yahweh from uh, Ahab's wife Jezebel. Ahab is in great contrast to Elijah, who stands and lives before the presence of the Lord. But Ahab refuses to do this. He is thoughtless. He is mindless in terms of his relationship with God. In many respects, uh, Ahab is the quintessential picture uh, of someone who lives as an orphan. They've been invited into a relationship. He has been invited into the family of Yahweh, but he lives as an orphan. And you can see it in the way that he responds. Uh, he hasn't repented. He is completely, he completely lacks self-awareness. Uh, he's angry. He's bitter. He blame shifts. Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah just very calmly says, it's not me that troubles Israel. It's, it's you. It's you and the fact that you've walked away from the very covenant that you were called to uphold as the king of Israel. Uh, but Ahab can't see it. And I wonder sometimes if, if we don't live like Ahab or if we can't see some of those qualities in our own life where we are angry and we blame shift and we lack a self-awareness uh, of things maybe even that have been pointed out to us in the past, uh, but we refuse to see. These can be characteristics of not really being rooted in the identity of being a daughter or being a son of God. And, and these are things that God is inviting us to, to notice. He, he invites us as his children to live self-aware, to live in an attitude of submission to him, to live in a way that we can actually notice when we've messed up and we can go back and to seek repentance with the Lord our God. But Ahab can't do that. He, he is mindless at this point, and I think you'll see throughout the stories, he is ultimately mindless uh, of any type of relationship with God any type of relationship with God. But I want to keep walking through this story and, and look not only at Ahab, but also at uh, these prophets of Baal. Uh, and this is my second point, 
this afternoon or this morning, um, namely that we, the prophets really, if Ahab was mindless, the prophets are mind-numbing. Uh, we see that in verses 20 to 29. Let me give you a little bit of the, the scene here. So Elijah has called all of the people the, the, all of the Israelites to join him on Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel is a, a registered sort of holy place or high place in the land. Uh, we have extant literature both from Egypt and Assyria uh, that highlight Mount Carmel, this particular area, as a high place to the Baals. So it's to this place that Elijah calls the people of Israel, he calls the prophets of Baal, he calls the prophets of Asherah too, who incidentally uh, don't seem to come, more on that later. Um, but uh, he calls them to this place and there is going to be a showdown. He, he lists the terms, he said, we're going to take the prophets of Baal, myself, we're each going to get a bull, we're each going to get an altar, we'll each cry out to our God, and whichever God answers, uh, this will be the God who proves himself to be a God who is worthy of completely surrendered hearts and minds. And the people say, yeah, this is good, it is well spoken, verse 24. Uh, now, note that Everything here shows the, the deck stacked against Elijah. Uh, they're on Baal's home turf. This is a high place to Baal. Uh, there are 450 prophets to, to one of Elijah. Elijah, when he goes and does his sacrifice, he, he dumps it with water. Um, he gives uh, time to the prophets of Baal. They take nearly the whole day in order to entreat their God. Uh, but Elijah is very sure of whose he is and how God will answer that. And it stands in such contrast to these prophets of Baal. I, I say that these prophets are mind-numbing. Look at how they act uh, in this scene here as we look at it in 20 to 29. The prophets take their bull uh, that was given them. They prepare it. They call upon the name of the Baal from morning till noon, crying out, but there's no answer. So they limp or they dance around the altar uh, that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocks them, which makes them cry out even louder, cuts themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. They raved on, it says in verse 29, uh, until the time of the offering of the evening oblation. But there is no answer. What do you see with these prophets of Baal? I want to suggest to you that that what we see with these prophets of Baal is what we see with a, a conception of religion. Here we see the prophets over and over and over again, crying out, dancing, cutting, raving. They're exerting all of this frenetic activity in order to what? In order to get Baal to notice them in order to prove to Baal that they are worthy of his answering them. They are seeking to manipulate their God 
into responding to their request. Now, why do I say that what we see with these Baal worshipers, and granted, at, at first blush, it just seems so foreign to our, um, our present situation. We don't think about cutting ourselves. We don't think about a sacrifice in this way. But when we really stop and think about it, we do oftentimes act in a way that is motivated the same way that these Baal prophets are. We, we believe that if we will just do more, if we will just pile on the frenetic activity, that then God will listen, that then God will answer, that then God will recognize that we are worthy of his coming and meeting us and doing the things that we are requesting that he do. There is sort of an evangelical version, if you will, of Baal worship. Uh, we, we take all of these good things. We take our Bible reading. We take our prayer times. We take our outreach ministries. We take all of these things and we pile them up in a frenetic activity in order uh, that we might merit a response from God. Now, there's a lot of freedom in this story, and I hope to bring that out to you in just a minute. But I want us to just stop and to think for a minute, to stop and reflect for a minute on the foolishness of this. And you really see it with these Baal prophets. Uh, they, they go on and on and on. And, and in fact, Elijah tells us that he mocks them saying, uh, cry aloud, for if he is a god, maybe he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey. That, that word mocks is actually what we call a hapex legomena. It's the only time that that word is used in the entire Bible uh, in Hebrew. I don't have a clear sense of it. One of the things that I would note for you, though, is I don't think that Elijah is mocking them in the sense of, uh, from a place of pride, uh, from a place of, I know better than you, because he actually uses their own words against them. He, he just points out the, the inadequacies or the fallacies, these things that they're talking about. He's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be wakened. These were actually stories that Baal worshipers had about his God. In the Ugaritic text, there is the story of Baal's consort, Anat, who comes to visit him, uh, but he's gone. He's on a journey. Uh, or there were stories about him going to sleep or even dying. Like this is part of the, the cutting themselves. They are seeking to um, identify with this God who dies every year and then has to be raised in a different time and then will bless them with fertility and all these different things. So what Elijah does here is he, he points out the inconsistencies in their own stories and think that this is a model for us. Uh, not pride, never pridefully mocking somebody, but, but helping them in a way to see the, the fallacies, the inconsistencies, the lack of foundation that 
the things that they are believing that cannot stand. And, and maybe we take this time even to reflect in our own relationship with God, our own acting before him. Are we acting in a way that is actually looking to us, or are we acting in a way that is looking towards him? The contrast, of course, is Elijah, and we see this in verses 30 to 38. If Ahab was mindless and the prophets were mind-numbing in the way that they approached God and uh, danced frenetically before him. Uh, what happens next is truly mind-blowing. You see Elijah, and again, the contrast with the prophets is just so great. Uh, when the people come to him, he heals the altar, repairs the altar. Literally, the word is healed. He takes the 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of Jacob, um, and then he, he prays. Uh, he rebuilds the altar. He pours the, the water over the sacrifice that he cuts. Uh, he, he does it a second time and a third time with the water until the water runs all over the altar, fills the trench. And then Elijah, the prophet, came near and he prayed. Just a very simple earnest prayer, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant uh, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. It's a beautiful, earnest prayer. It shows what we've already seen in Elijah, that he is so founded in his identity as belonging to the Lord. And he prays to him out of that secure heart of belonging, this secure heart that has been strengthened in his time by the brook and his time with the widow. He, he prays earnestly. He prays earnestly for the people. Contrast to Ahab. Ahab's worried about his, his oxen and his horses and his mules. But Ah Elijah here is praying earnestly for the people that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back to them, that you desire mercy for them, that you don't want to see them continue to walk in a way of destruction. This is what Elijah prays here. And then notice the result. The result is that the fire falls from heaven immediately. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, everything that Elijah had repaired, everything that he had set up is consumed in this one moment. What does that mean? Well, Israel's history has several times in it that they would know when the fire of the Lord has come and consumed the altar, uh, the offering. In, in Leviticus chapter 9, at the 
consecration of the tabernacle, the fire of the Lord came and consumed the altar, uh, the offering, and the people bowed down. They fell on their face in worship. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, the same thing happens after Solomon prays and Chapter 6 of Second Chronicles, at the dedication of the temple, the fire falls and the people fall on their face and they worship God. This is a sign, this is sort of God's green light that I have accepted the sacrifice and the way is open between you and me. You no longer have to flail and self-flagellate and do all of these crazy things in order to get my attention because I am here and I am accessible. This is what the fire falling from heaven was saying to the people of Israel. And this is what that fire falling from heaven is saying to us as well because we have even a greater picture of a sacrifice that took the entirety of the wrath of God, the fire from heaven that fell on him as he was spread out on the old rugged cross, as he was spread out on a hilltop, as he was laid on the altar, as it were, and the fire of God's wrath fell full on Jesus, and it consumed him, just like this altar with its 12 stones symbolizing Israel, symbolizing the Old Testament version of the church. So the fire fell and consumed Jesus, who was the true Israelite, who was our substitute, our atoning sacrifice. And when the fire falls from heaven on him, it is the final time. It is finished. It's really interesting here. Two times we're told that when Elijah begins and Elijah prays, it's the time of the evening sacrifice, uh, the evening oblation. This is the exact time, three o'clock, uh, when, when Jesus cried out, it is finished and the temple veil was ripped in two and that access between God and his people is opened forever. As we look at this story here, it's mind-blowing, not just in what God does here in calling down the fire and just showing his absolute supremacy over all things, but it's mind-blowing in the picture that it gives us of the final sacrifice of Jesus. Remember Hebrews 10 verse 10 tells us that Jesus was the sacrifice once for all that was accepted by the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is such a sweet, sweet picture of what our Lord has done for us in that he was consumed in order that we might not be. When God is coming and saying, how long are you going to keep limping between two opinions? How long are you going to keep limping like these prophets in these ineffective ways of trying to manipulate a God to do your bidding? I am a God that has given myself for you. And now I am inviting you into a relationship where you sweetly surrender to me. 
and you know my grace, and you know my fullness, and your mind is blown because of my love for you. And you notice that things begin to change. This is the last thing I just want to touch base with you here. There, there are actually a couple of things. Uh, you notice then, and this is where I term this mind altering. Uh, things begin to change at this point. I've already mentioned to you just the people's choice. The, the people do fall on their faces before the Lord and they say, the Lord, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And that same choice is coming to us. We've just alluded to it, the invitation of the Lord to set our minds on him, to abandon all of our own self-salvation efforts, and to accept the absolutely finished work of Christ. There's something else here to note, though, in this mind-altering sort of point that we are making. Verse 40, and it's, it's, a, it's a rough verse. Seize the prophets, Elijah says. Let not one of them escape. And they seize him. Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and he slaughtered them there. 450 prophets of Baal slaughtered on this day. Now, for many people, and I understand this to some degree, this is very problematic. So see, here you go. You've got this great story of God coming down, doing all this, and then we're going to end it with uh, angry Elisha, or Elijah uh, slaughtering 450 people, really? Well, what we have to understand is that um, when Elijah does this, he is acting as a covenant arbiter. Uh, he is acting as God's arm of justice. If you look back in Deuteronomy chapter 13, you see in the covenant documents that God had made with his people Israel, he had clearly laid out what the penalties were for apostasy, for especially for those who lead others into apostasy. And, and it's very, very graphic in, in Deuteronomy chapter 13. It's very detailed. If a prophet or somebody who even does some real things leads you astray, they're to be put to death. If your brother, uh, or the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend entices you away from God, you are to kill them personally. You are to bring justice to them personally. And talks about a whole city. We saw this earlier in you know, Mount Carmel is, uh, is a picture of what happened in Exodus chapter 32 as well. Exodus chapter 32, when the golden calf was made, you remember Moses, when he came down, he, he called the people to him and the Levites came. And then, then he said, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate to the camp. And each of you kill his brother, his companion, his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. It's amazing. And again, these things are, are troublesome to us, but, but we are so locked into uh, a view of God that doesn't recognize the absolute holiness 
of what he has called us, who he has called us to be. And when we see this and when we see the covenant documents and when we see what God has called and invited the people to and what and the ways in which they flaunt that, the ways in which they, they go against that, we recognize that this isn't a matter of simple angry vengeance. This is a matter of justice. And this is what helps us to recognize the beauty of what Christ did. When Christ took that wrath of God, he took the wrath of God that is displayed here by Elijah against these prophets. The prophets most likely were Israelites. They were people that had converted to Baalism, had walked away from Yahweh, and were leading others away. What God, what happens here is justice. Uh, it's not anger. It's not, it's not revenge in that sense. It's justice. And what makes the gospel so beautiful is that Jesus takes that justice. He suffers all of the torments of hell for those of us who will uh, find ourselves in him, surrender to him. But if we won't, and this I think is the warning of verse 40, if we won't, uh, then we have to suffer God's justice uh, in our own person. Lastly, notice that the rain comes. It's interesting here. God told Elijah that uh, he was going to send rain, and yet in this passage, Elijah prays seven times for, for rain. It's fascinating just to kind of go through beginning in chapter 17 and then also 18. Uh, a couple times there are some different prayers of Elijah, and sometimes they're answered immediately. Sometimes uh, he prays three times or he prays um, seven times, as we see here. Reminds us that not all prayer is the same and that God doesn't answer it always the same. Uh, it's also interesting to note that God says he's going to send rain and still Elijah is called to pray. Uh, and that's part of our role here, this, our journey uh, in this earth. Even though God has made great and precious promises, he still uh, beseeches us to pray and ask him. And we become participators in God's carrying out of his will on the nations uh, of this earth. But here he sends rain. He sends rain, he blesses the land, he reminds them that he indeed is Yahweh, and the people have a tangible showering to know that the Lord, he is God. And interestingly, uh, Elijah, he, he's not limping. He gathers up his garments and, and he sprints before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Brothers and sisters, what, what an incredible story uh, of God's continued pursuit of a people that will abandon him at any cost. His continued to pursuit because he wants their hearts. He wants to call them back, uh, that their hearts may be turned back to him, that they would see that he is a God who is not only supremely powerful, but he is a God who accepts atoning sacrifice and in the final chapter even provides the atoning sacrifice himself, his son, Jesus Christ. 
I'm glad that you came and that we were able to walk through this. I, I wish you uh, God's richest blessings as you walk throughout this day. May you truly know this God of Elijah. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would seal it to our hearts, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.